0: Note. Let's get into our message today. We are back in Esther. We're in our series, Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. And last week was kind of an uncomfortable place. We were left hanging with the reality of evil. There had been a decree, an irrevocable decree, issued by the Persian king declaring the destruction of God's people. And we're faced with this question, where will deliverance come from? How are they going to get out of this one? God was not mentioned at all in chapter 3. As we look forward to the rest of the book, we're going to see that He is not mentioned in the rest of it. So how is God going to deliver His people? Will He even show up? We often wonder that same question in our own lives when we're faced with evil. God, will you show up? Why is this happening? Guys, I tell you, Friday night felt that way for me. Not just the email stuff, but there were a few other things going on in the life of our church that were kind of just impacting me personal, personally. And I remember Friday night, Rocks can attest to this, I was like, I, I just want to shut down. I, I just want to sit here. I don't want to play a game with my kids. I just want to sit and do nothing because my soul is feeling crushed right now. People are preying on people in our church. And I was angry. God, where are you? So perhaps you sometimes feel that way in your own life. God, where are you? But then it also leads us sometimes to the question, okay, what are you expecting of me? What is my response supposed to be? What's my role in all this? God, surely you don't want me To be part of the solution or the answer. We face those difficult questions. All right, let's dive into our text today, and we're going to see the answer to evil. We're going to see it today. But let me pray before we dive in. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to hear from you today. Grant us soft hearts in your mercy. May we have ears to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. And guys, by the way, I'm really excited about today because we've, we've kind of been in this rough part of the book. And finally today, we're getting to some resolution. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. All right, so this decree has been issued, and Mordecai hears of it. And what's his response? He's mourning, he's lamenting. This sackcloth and ashes thing is a picture of mourning, lamenting, repentance. It's that type of thing that we get throughout the Old Testament. And this is the right and good response to insurmountable evil. Oftentimes, our response to evil is, well, I'm just going to get rid of it or I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to deal with it as quickly as possible. I remember when uh, Rox and I first moved into our first home, we had some dandelions sprouting up. And I didn't know the first thing about long hair. So I saw these dandelions and I was like, oh, we got to get rid of those. So I just went and kind of plucked them up. And uh, yeah, that, that's not a successful way to get rid of dandelions. You know, they just come back, right back. You got to dig them out. You got to get the roots. You got to get them kind of, well, or you can just spray a bunch of chemicals on it and, and get rid of them that way. That's my preferred method now. But, you know, back then, you know, with, when there's weeds, you have to get down into the soil and pull them out. Mourning and lamenting is a way to kind of sit in the weeds and figure out okay where do these roots actually go it's a right and good response our culture we don't like that misery we don't so we don't like the idea of mourning and lamenting we'll just get over it why are you still upset about that but I think God calls us to mourn and lament. Sadly, I do not have time this morning to really unpack this. Maybe another uh, morning we'll get to examine the ideas of mourning and lamenting more. But the author here uses this picture of mourning and lamenting to really set up the dialogue that's about to happen between Mordecai and Esther. So it kind of serves as that inciting incident for what's to come. So let's keep going. In verse 4, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Let's pause here. Esther hears about, not the decree, but about Mordecai, and she is deeply distressed. That word there is actually the same word that's used for a woman in labor. So the author here is like, yeah, Esther is really upset. She's really pained at seeing Mordecai doing this. She's like, Mordecai, stop embarrassing yourself. Here, I'll send him some clothes so he can kind of put it on and stop making a scene. She's more concerned with the fact that Mordecai looks ridiculous and is acting ridiculous than he is with why he is mourning. We're going to have a little bit of a character arc here with Esther. Starting in verse 6 now. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now pause here. For those of us who've grown up in the church, we know how this turns out. We know that Esther ultimately becomes the hero of the story And so we kind of forget what's about to come. We think, oh yeah, Esther's going to say yes. But, spoiler alert, that's not what she is about to say. So let's see what Esther says. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say... All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther says, no. These are the first words of Esther in the entire book. Esther has not actually spoken in direct dialogue, narratively speaking, until now. And her first words are woo. Uh, you do know that that potentially carries the sentence of death, do you not? And uh, the king doesn't seem too terribly interested in me right now. He hasn't seen me for 30 days. He's probably been interested in some of his concubines instead of me, the queen. So I, I don't know, Mordecai, if that's really a good idea for me to go and talk to the king right now. And there's a little bit of irony here. Esther, as a book, is full of irony. It's ironic that Esther, as a Jew, faces destruction and she is afraid to go to the king because she might face destruction. So our author and our narrator here are kind of giving us a, ha, look at this. Esther herself is governed by fear. As we see, she's governed by fear right here in her first speech. So that brings us to our first point today. Fear of loss, fear of loss can keep us from faithful obedience. Fear of loss can keep us from faithful obedience. By faithful obedience, what I mean is looking to act in a way that pleases God despite not knowing how it will turn out. Despite not knowing how it will turn out. That's the faithful part. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know that God wants me to move forward. Oftentimes, we know the right course of action. We understand that, yes, if I move in this direction, it will be pleasing, but eh, I don't know how it's going to turn out, and uh, it might be bad for me. I might lose something that's precious to me, so I'm not going to do it. Esther didn't want to lose her life, which is understandable. I don't think many of us are like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to just kind of die today. Insert Klingon joke with, today is a good day to die. Some of you will understand that, but many of you may not. So fear of loss can keep us from faithful obedience, and it's those things that we value, some of them good, some of them not so good, but we place a value on them, and we fear losing them in a way that ultimately keeps us from pleasing the Lord. For us to move past this, and by the way, we can fear losing things besides our lives. We can fear losing our status. Uh, maybe even just the convenience that we have in our daily lives, whether it's a rhythm of life that I have, oh, this is what I do, these are the things and the patterns that my family participates in, and I don't want that to be disrupted, so I'm not going to go serve in this capacity over here. So it's not just, oh, I think harm might come to me, but sometimes it's those little benign things of, you know, I don't really want to lose that piece of my life right now, and so I'm not really going to be faithfully obedient In this circumstance. For us to move forward, something has to push into that fear, or really there needs to be something that we see as more valuable, or we need to see that those things we fear losing aren't really threatened to begin with. That maybe those things we value will have in their full some other way. We need to see that those things we value are indeed actually secure. The things maybe I should say, that we should value, the things that we ought to value, the things that God has designed us to value, those things in Christ are secure. And fear then won't have hold a hold over us, and we'll be able to be bold. So, Esther is fearful. How is Mordecai going to respond to Esther's fear? So we're going to move into point two. I'm not going to tell you what point two is uh, right here, but we are moving into point two in case you like to take notes in those spaces. But let's keep reading. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, you guys may be familiar with the phrase, you know, for such a time as this. And it's powerful words. But this whole speech of Mordecai is powerful. These are the only words Mordecai says in the entire book. The only words. And they find themselves kind of right in the middle. And I think in many ways, these are the heart of the book. The only words of Mordecai. And they are profound. He's basically saying, Look, you are also under threat, Esther, but deliverance will rise. And who knows, maybe you are in your position right now because you are the one that that deliverance will come through. That's what his argument. And it all rests on one simple idea. Deliverance will rise. Deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He's rebuking her through a theological truth. That one truth, deliverance will rise. How can Mordecai actually say that? How can he have confidence in such an assertion? After all, the decree of the Persian emperor, the Persian king, is irrevocable. This decree will not be changed. So how can Mordecai say, you know what? the most powerful empire in the world, has said that our people is going to be destroyed in the twelfth month, but deliverance will rise. In essence, he's trusting in a deeper, more irrevocable decree than the irrevocable decree of King Ahasuerus. There's a second irrevocable decree that we have to deal with in the book of Esther. It's not just Haman's game of I want to destroy the Jews and that one irrevocable decree comes of that. No, there's a deeper one that comes from God Himself. Because consistently throughout the Scriptures, God says that He will save and He will deliver His people. Yes, He will discipline them. Yes, they will sometimes walk through difficult things as He purifies and refines them. But He says He will always rescue them. He will always have a people that he calls his own. He desires a people and he longs to dwell with them. I'm going to look at three promises in the Old Testament that God gave his people that Mordecai would have been able to draw upon and that he probably knew and perhaps are the ones that even stood behind his statement, deliverance will rise. I don't know which ones he's got in mind, but obviously there's some. And so I'm going to give you three examples of the irrevocable decree of God. One of these, the first one that I'm going to share, comes at pretty much the darkest moment in the history of God's people. It's when Babylon is conquering Judah. That's the low point. That's the low point. Because Babylon is there as a result of the failure of God's people. The king is going to be unseated, the temple destroyed, and the people cast out of the land. All of the wonderful things about being part of God's people are about to be annihilated. But in Jeremiah 33, we will kind of all in the middle of Jeremiah, verse, or chapters 29 through 33, we get this hope. And I've talked about this little book of hope that we find in the middle of Jeremiah before. But I'm going to pick up in, in Jeremiah 33. This is the very end of the book of hope, starting in verse 14. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to burn burnt to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now, this was a long section, but there is so many Glorious, golden promises packed in here. David's son or descendant of his, Zedekiah, is going to be cast off the throne. His people taken out of the land, the temple destroyed. Will God fulfill these promises? And God says, as sure as the day will come. The sun comes up every day. The moon comes up. We kind of bank on that happening. He's like, if that doesn't happen, then my covenant can be broken. He says, no, I will save my people. Just as the sun never fails to rise, God never fails to uphold and deliver his people. In Isaiah, we get similar promises. Isaiah really kind of stands as the paradigm for all of the prophetic books and the Gospels in particular, lean heavily on the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are full of judgment and discipline. There's some hope in there. There's some glimpses of a future promise of of glory. But for the most part, it's pretty dreadful. But then in chapter 40, everything changes. And chapters 40 through 66 are full of these promises of a glorious end times restoration for the people of God And so the very beginning of 40 stands as this introduction to the promise of the hope that God's people have in Him. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 5 and also verse 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be familiar with these words because the very beginning of the Gospels say, hey, what's happening here in Christ is what was promised by Isaiah at the beginning of this portion of hope that he offers. And so again, Mordecai would know these words and would know that this has yet to happen. So how can God's people be blotted out from the record? He knows that they won't because this promise has yet to be fulfilled. God's word will stand forever. Psalm 136, you may be familiar with this one, especially if you know the song, His love endures forever. Like that one, like it just kind of repeats that line. Psalm 136 repeats, for His steadfast love will endure forever, over and over again. Let's, let's read a little. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'll stop there, but the entire psalm is this. It is recounting, ultimately, God rescuing his people from Egypt. Each line is kind of saying something that he did. And then adding the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. This word, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word chesed. I have mentioned it before. I will mention it again because it is an incredibly important word. And it is the word for covenant faithfulness. That the one in the covenant will not abandon the other. It is steadfast love. And so Mordecai, when he thinks again about God's people being destroyed, he says, no, God's steadfast love endures forever His people will not be destroyed. So here's our point. took us a while to get there. God has irrevocably decreed deliverance for His people. God has irrevocably decreed deliverance for His people. Well, when we think about this in our context, and even theirs as well, because again, those promises are the same for us, for all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians verse 120. So, what specifically and ultimately has God promised for his people? What is our deliverance? What's well, peace with God, a new permanent home, freedom from sin, eternal life. That's the promise that God gives his people. So when we read these promises of the Old Testament, Ultimately, they are pointing to that future glorious reality in Christ. And we have these promises as well. Mordecai got to look through a really murky, vague, somewhat unclear, in his context at least, promise. But we look back and because of Christ we see clearly and we have very clear promises about the end. Let's look at Revelation, verse 1 and 2. I bet Mordecai would have loved to have this. Sorry, 1 to 5, starting in verse 1. Or sorry, this is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, excuse me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. A promise of a future reality that is sure, that is good. And this is for God's people. God will be with His people. Deliverance for us will rise. Just as Mordecai knew that deliverance would rise, and that impacts what he says to Esther, it should impact us as well. God's deliverance is based upon His promise, not the behavior of His people. The behavior of His people were pretty appalling, but His promise remained. And so praise be to God for us that when evil lurks out there and evil lurks in here, God's promise of deliverance is not thwarted. It remains. There's an irrevocable decree. So what do we do with it? If our behavior, if the promise isn't based on our behavior, well, ultimately the promise should lead us to different behavior. The promise isn't based on behavior, but it leads to different behavior. So here's our third point. God's irrevocable decree of deliverance enables us to step forward in faithful obedience. The irrevocable decree of deliverance enables us to step forward in faithful obedience. If I think God's favor for me is going to be based on my faithful obedience, well then faithful obedience becomes a burden. And sometimes the things of this life, like even maybe my life, feel like they have more promise than doing what God wants. But if I see God's irrevocable decree as better, then I am now freed up to move where God wants me to go because nothing else will matter to me. So let's get back to the passage at hand and see Esther's response. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So here we have the second time Esther speaks, and something has changed. She now says, yes, send me, I'll go. She instructs the Jews to fast, and unlike the first fast, which was a fast of lament, this is a fast for action. When we fast in this type of way, it's not us saying, okay, God, you must act because I've done this. But it's saying, Lord, I need you. I need you more than food. And it's focusing how I will pray because I'm constantly reminded that I do indeed need my heavenly Father. That's what a fast is. It's saying, oh, Lord, I need you. And I'm constantly reminded of how I need you because I'm reminded of my need for food. And so I cry out to God, and Esther is saying, cry out to God on my behalf. Fast for me, because I'm going to go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. This isn't a resigned, oh, well, maybe I'll die, okay. It's a, my life isn't my own, so if I perish, I perish. She's going to disobey the law and go. Which is a little funny because remember how Haman said in chapter 3 these people disobey your laws. And here again, disobeying the law, but it's for God's people. As I see what I most need is provided through God's promised deliverance, I'm free to risk what I have here so that I can faithfully obey. I can risk, not in the foolish sense of, oh, I'm just going to toss money around. But no, I'm going to risk my reputation. I'm going to risk feeling uncomfortable. Maybe I'll risk something financially. Oh, because I know that God will deliver me. God will deliver me. So see this point again. God's irrevocable decree of deliverance enables us to step forward in faithful obedience. I also want to note that God's sovereign plan of deliverance is mysteriously worked out through our faithful obedience. Deliverance for God's people ultimately didn't rest upon Esther. It rested upon God and His plan and His promise. But somehow, mysteriously, He used Esther and her obedience to bring deliverance. It's a privilege to be a part of God's plan. As we sit here today, we need to think of it as a privilege to be a part of God's command. Think about it this way. This room, there's there's two different types of people in this room. The type of person that wants to take the last shot, you're saying, coach, give me the ball. I'm taking the last shot. And there's the other people that are like, uh, no, I don't want the last shot. I don't like that amount of pressure. I don't want the spotlight on me. Yeah, yeah, two groups. And some of you who are afraid of taking the last shot, you don't want to take it because perhaps you feel failure. You don't want that weight on you. And those who do want the last shot, you're like, Yeah, I want it to be all up to me. I want to use this example that God invites us to be the ones who take the last shot at the end of the game. Imagine we're, you know, we're huddled around in a timeout during a basketball game and God's a coach and he's saying, I'm giving the ball to you. You're going to take the shot. But guess what? Whether you make it or not, we're going to win the game. You look at the coach and you think, how could that be possible? If I'm taking the last shot and I miss, we're not winning the game. The coach is like, no, no. I'm the sovereign, omnipotent God. And whether you make it or not, we're going to win the game. Because God in his mercy knows that even if you take that shot and it misses, maybe the other team's accidentally even going to tip it in. Because He's our God and He's that faithful. and He just asks us to take that step of obedience and be faithful. And He works out the rest. We get to take that shot and we don't have to worry whether it's going to go in or not. We're going to win the game, period. Because He delivers us. Now, for those of you here this morning who may be struggling with the fact that, man, I failed before. I didn't take that last shot. I didn't t- step up and go to the King. I had my opportunity. I knew that God put me here for such a time as this and I blew it for you. And by the way, that's really all of us. There's hope. Peter had three opportunities the night of Jesus' trial to faithfully proclaim Christ, and he failed. Esther initially said no. She failed, but God still used her. God can still use you no matter what you have done in the past. Now, I want to do some specific how-tos. How do we obey God and what He said, despite not knowing the outcome? It's really just two simple steps. And these are similar to things I've said before. This shouldn't be new. But first, we seek the Lord. We saw Esther asking Mordecai and the rest of the Jews to do that. You seek the Lord, fasting, coming before Him and saying, Lord, I need you. Oftentimes, we come to the Lord saying, Lord, I want to know the answer. But really, what God asks us to do is come to Him, and say, I need you. I don't have the answer. Will you help me? I think that's a better posture. Seek the Lord by expressing reliance upon Him. And then secondly, we step forward in faith. Esther didn't know whether she was going to live or die, but she said, I'm going to do it. I will go before the king. So seek the Lord, step forward in faith. It's those two simple things. Some examples of where this can take place in your life. There's the big, which we all kind of think about. Maybe the Lord might be calling you to adoption. Or perhaps even a call to ministry or maybe a career change that would bring less money but would free you up to be more uh, present with your family or friends or your church family. Those are kind of big calls that we often think about and say, okay, Lord, help me to step out in faith. But I think sometimes it's those small things, the little things like a rebuke of a friend where we know, we see something in, in a friend's life and God may be saying, I'm asking you to go call your friend to repentance. Whoa. sometimes that can feel scarier than uh, a career change, can it not? But that really is a small thing, all things considered. Maybe it's sharing your faith with a neighbor or a stranger. Maybe it's a fear of starting to do family devotions or family worship because you feel like you don't know how. Or... Maybe it's a fear of asking somebody to mentor you or disciple you because you're afraid they'll say no or that you'll look like a fool or maybe you feel like you don't have enough spiritual knowledge so why would anybody ever want to invest in you? By the way, like, those are the best types of people to invest in, by the way. If you feel like you don't know anything but you have a heart to learn, you're the best candidate. Or perhaps you need to take a step of faith and start mentoring or discipling somebody else. And yeah, you'll have to ask somebody, and it may feel awkward. They might say no. But maybe God is asking you to do that. He's given you unique experiences and skills. He's put you here for such a time as this. Or perhaps you're here today, and you don't know Christ. You're not a Christian, or maybe you thought you were a Christian your whole life, but you're realizing maybe you don't really know Christ. I'm reminded of how Esther in this story willingly puts her life on the line to go before a king and he may, she may suffer his wrath. And there's another person who said, I will represent my people. And he knew that the answer was going to be death. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly, representing his people. And he did it for his people. He died so that we wouldn't have to die. He died for our sins. He lived the perfect life. And he willingly gave his life for you and for me, for those who place their faith in Christ, for those who believe and surrender and say, Jesus, you are my, my Savior. I trust you. Jesus laid his life down for us, just as Esther put her life on the line for her people. And so perhaps this morning the Lord is asking you, are you ready to surrender to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus I believe, I believe. That's all we have to do to be saved. Believe, believe. Now, true belief involves repentance. Turning around the other way and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you instead of following myself. Will you believe? Church, this is our God, the God who saves, the God who brings kindness, the God who has steadfast love, the God who does not forsake his people. We can move forward because of that. Here's our big idea for today. You've got it in your worship order. God is and will be faithful to us. So let us step out in faith for Him. Church, let's not have fear govern our lives. Let's remember that there's a deeper, irrevocable decree that's been issued on our behalf. May we believe. And may we move forward in faithfulness. Church, the message isn't be like Esther. Please don't hear me saying that this morning. It's not be like Esther. It's, oh, we have a good king who said good things on our behalf. So let's step out in faith together, trusting the sureness of that decree. Let me pray. Father, we praise your name. We thank you that you are good and kind and that you have offered us salvation. You have promised us deliverance, and that cannot be taken away because your word is true. Father, help us to live in light of that, not trusting in ourselves, not being fear of what we may or may not lose, but may we see that you are good. Thank you, Father, that you are kind and faithful, that your steadfast love never fails. It endures forever. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.